Welcome to The Grid. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible No Limit Hold'em hand, 169 hands in total, from aces to seven deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like ace-king are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You got the cards, dealer, I'm feeling it hit me, yeah, I got swagger, they see me, see me strutting, all sweating daggers, believe it, I'm the real thing, but I gotta switch it on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Poker Grid. My guest today is Andrew Lichtenberger, a.k.a. Lucky Chewy. He has over $10 million in live earnings and is both a World Poker Tour and World Series of Poker champion. Andrew manages to embody what a lot of poker players strive for, a calm, tranquil energy combined with focus and aggression while playing. He's a vocal proponent of meditation, yoga, and even wrote a book on yoga of poker, high stakes journey to freedom. He's also a coach at Learn WPT, where he hosts live seminars and makes videos but we'll get to all of that but first things first i'm here to talk with andrew about a hand from the nbc heads up tournament back in 2013 where he faced victor blom hey andrew welcome to the show hey jen thanks so much for having me it's a pleasure to be here yeah um so tell us about this hand against victor was this your first time at the nbc heads up and how much had you played with victor prior to this it was my first time I think I dabbled with him uh, only very minimally online up until this point to kind of set the mood uh, as we were getting ready to start the tournament. He had not shown up, and uh, the producers acknowledged that he'd been up very late playing Chinese poker or some some other variant of poker. So they went and knocked on his hotel, and he came down all disheveled. So I was feeling pretty good about my chances right off the bat. And yeah, then this hand occurred... Uh, I can't remember exactly how long the blind levels were, but let's say it was maybe 30, 45 minutes into the match. And I open uh, to 1,300 at 3,600 with 7-4 offsuit. And he 3-bets to 3,600 with 6-3 suited. And my decision to 4-bet, it's not, you can't really justify it with like any sort of logical approach. But this also was in a sort of different era of poker. It was just sort of one of those things. I don't know if you've ever read Blink or are familiar with the idea, uh, the Malcolm Gladwell book, but it just really felt to me in that moment like uh, he just had a particularly viable three betting hand, but maybe wasn't towards the top of his range. So I went ahead and, and put in the small four bet to 6,200, which probably in retrospect was a bit too small because as was evidenced by this hand, he, he ended up peeling with uh, you know, what is probably one of the worst hands he's going to three bet with. And uh, yeah, then we saw a flop of ace, five, four rainbow. He checked and I bet 2,100, which is exceptionally small, but it felt, it felt justifiable in the moment. Although again, looking back on that, depending on how you construct the preflop range, it, it might not really make that much sense to make a, a small bet like like that on this texture. Oh, what percentage was that? You said you bet 2,100 into to what, what, what was the total pot size? It would have been 12,4. So 
pretty small, like 17% pot or something. Right. And so you were saying that you would normally bet a little bit larger? I think that size is okay on this texture, but I feel like with the way that the ranges sort of ended up being constructed from preflop that my goal was to just uh, deny equity to overcards, but I'm not actually sure that there are that many combinations of 10-9 suited type stuff that I would benefit uh, from from folding out uh, with this approach. So it's hard to say. Um, again, poker was in a different era, so it's easy to plug it into a solver nowadays and be like, oh yeah, this was the right thing to do, but uh, whether the assumptions that it would make about his range are accurate or not is, uh, well, no way to really know. But speaking of that, you mentioned this kind of intuitive grasp, which I'm sure you um, certainly have a, a great handle on compared to a lot of players. And the book Blink, that you, that's the reason that you four bet with a 7-4 off. And you ended up being correct that he was three betting light. Did you feel like you would do the same thing today and just make it a little bit larger preflop? Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's an interesting thing to strike a balance between those those two strategic approaches. Like, on the one hand, I definitely value the game theory approach and the fundamentals, and it's, it's undeniable. I mean, the math doesn't lie. But yet, on the other hand, the, the intuitive component of poker is just, I don't know, it's very near to my heart, and uh, I just, I resonate so deeply with it. So one thing I've sort of acknowledged about myself, for better or worse, is that when I truly believe something is, is right, you know, in, in poker, I guess, in life for that matter, it's going to be pretty much impossible for me to not follow through on it. So yeah, I mean, I, I very well may still make that play today. Maybe I'd use a different size, as you mentioned. It, it's hard to say exactly, but that's sort of my take on the, the balance I try to strike between those, those two different approaches, those two different worlds. I want to ask you more about that, but I think you should probably wrap up the hand because you were telling us about the 2100 bet into 12K on the flop, and then what happened? Uh, so after I bet 2100, he check shoved. I can't remember the exact amount. I want to say it was somewhere between 16 and 18,000. And I had a, a decision to make. I mean, my pair has some value. Um, I, I did kind of think that an ace was pretty unlikely. Like if he had a weak suited ace, there's a decent chance he would just five bet shove. If he had a big ace, like, you know, ace, jack, ace, queen, plus, there's some chance he just calls with a hand like ace, jack, pre. Um, I think ace, ace, queen or better just uh, gets five bet all in. So I did think that he sort of connected with the the four and the five in, in some way. I thought a hand like five, three suited was somewhat possible. Kind of my main concern was him having a five. Also, the seven isn't really a good card for me. Like, say he has six, seven, or seven, three, open-ended or double uh, double got shot draws. Uh, I, I sort of block those, so some removal components going on that don't work in my favor. So, yeah, I ended up folding and uh, felt kind of dumb <laughs> later when I, I talked to him about the hand after the match. When he check shoves there, what do you feel like is some of his weakest hands that he would do that for value? It, the, the flop being ace, five, four, right? Yeah, I think um, it's plausible that he could have a worse four, like four, three suited seems like a possible holding. I guess worse hand is, you know, the hand he had. I don't think he ever has a worse hand than that. I mean, it's effectively the nut low to begin with. Yeah, I mean, with the open-ended Straight draw, I think, you know, he played the hand well, for sure. Oh, I meant the worst hand for value. Ah, worst value hand. If Say he had a hand like 5-3 suited. You know, he has a pair, but there's some chance that he folds out 
and like tens, I guess. I mean, I don't think bet folding tens is a viable option, but I think that when the stack to pot ratio is so diminished because of the four bet pot that him shoving with a four or a four or five with a gut shot, I guess that it's sorted for value, but it's sort of you don't really want to get called. But if you do, like you, you probably have enough equity given how how big the pot is, uh, especially if you know. You put hands like 7-4 in my range. So I think those hands are probably the worst. Was there a gut feeling that you should call there? Like, why do you say that you felt stupid? I guess I felt stupid primarily because I was trying to fold out those hands pre and kind of just making the four bet too small. It was, you know, effectively me shooting myself in the foot, I think. So more that than anything. Um, I didn't feel that silly about not calling the flop. I mean, when I know his exact hand, of course, I'd, I would like to go back in time and call. But I think having the seven, it doesn't really make it that great of a spot for me to, to call the shove. And you ended up losing the match. But this is like a very hyper turbo structure, right? I mean, what was your whole impression of playing against Victor be- besides his hand? Uh, I mean, he's definitely a very talented player. It was kind of interesting that even though you could tell he had just woken up, he kind of just got right back into the into his groove, into his flow. It didn't seem like uh, it really affected him all that much. Maybe a little bit in the first level, but yeah, I mean, he just has a a knack for poker, just sort of an innate talent. What does talent in poker mean to you? The innate talent, what do you mean by that? Hmm. I would say the way I would define innate talent is uh, just, I guess, uh, an inclination towards being a a good strategic problem solver and the way that that sort of maps onto the game of poker. Like, I think I sort of, I had some innate talent. A lot of it was learned along the way through experience, but I was sort of always into strategy games and played various card games before I got into poker, among other, uh, just games that involved strategy. So I don't know. I just think people are predisposed in certain ways to, uh, have different character traits, whether it's, biological, genetic, epigenetic, I don't really know. Um, you know, maybe it's just nurture. Uh, it could be any number of things. But I feel like in in my case, and I would, you know, assume in Victor's, there was just sort of some ability to metaphorically pick up the bike and be able to just start, start riding it better than maybe the, the average individual would be able to. Definitely makes sense, um, especially starting out very young. I think that it shows great sportsmanship and also just awareness that the fact that he came very late and ended up really disheveled, I think that would actually rattle a lot of people because they're sitting there waiting, wondering if he's actually going to come. And then you jump right into the poker. That kind of thing doesn't rattle you. Yeah, I actually knew already that I was going to play him. I can't remember when they published the uh, the bracket, but I, I sort of knew what to expect. I was kind of excited because, I don't know, he was at, at that point in time sort of peaking as a popularity figure within poker and uh, i definitely enjoy a good heads up match so i was i was pretty excited actually just to have the experience of playing in that format was that the first time you met him in person no i think i met him very briefly after uh a day of playing at the ept madrid and just said hello and we were with some mutual friends and yeah but i didn't really get to know him at any point and you mentioned that you had this gut feeling about four betting the seven four off. Is that perhaps a live tell that he was giving off? Or do you feel like that's something that you just feel sometimes about anyone, no matter how practiced and experienced they are in the live format? 
Yeah, the way I describe it is it's less of like a live tell. Like it's not a sort of Oreo cookie type thing that you might see in rounders. It's more just either you pick up on something the other person is thinking or some very sort of subtle body movement. I'm sort of currently, at least in the camp of thinking that it it is maybe perhaps more of an energetic thing. Uh, just being around someone that you you know quite well, sometimes you can kind of identify what they're thinking or how they're feeling. I think that elements of that do creep into live poker and even maybe online poker for that matter. I can't quantify exactly what it, what it is, but maybe some combination of those different components that makes me confident enough to act on those those gut feelings. So you've been playing poker for a long time and you're very you're known as a very positive, calm person. I want to know how you Combine that with the merciless aggression that's sometimes required at the poker table, especially in like the live exploitative context. Um, is that something that came naturally to you or did you have to develop it? Like how, how does that combine? Um, that's a great question. I think aspects of it came naturally to me, but then as I played more and more, I sort of had to dive a bit deeper to figure out if I'm okay with it and why I'm okay with it. And the eventual sort of justification I came up with is that you know, poker is a game between consenting adults, like everyone's there out of their own volition. So, you know, if someone wants to play and they lose, that's kind of on them. And furthermore, the fact that poker has a financial component to it, it doesn't remove the fact that, uh, say, in basketball is usually the example that I use. If you are playing someone one-on-one, and you're beating them consistently, they're able to learn through the experience of losing how they can improve uh, themselves within the game, but maybe in a larger sense, just in their in their life in general. And I think that's definitely true for poker and, and probably even for chess as well. I think uh, there's a lot of relatability, I guess, between how you sort of think in the game and how you think about life outside the game. And I think, you know, for me personally, I've found that... Uh, the thoughts I bring to the poker table are often very reflective of whether or not I have success. And, you know, sometimes losing is the best way to get a wake-up call that maybe you should reframe your mindset a bit. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And when I asked that question, I was also looking at it from a different angle. When I was using the word exploit, I was also thinking about exploitations as opposed to game theory optimal. And the fact that you are you have all this positive energy and then you're maybe telling your strategies to punish someone who is making mistakes and how that really requires like a lot of aggression and that that sometimes can be conflated with like anger or meanness. And I just don't see that in you. So how do you combine those two things? Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just think it's part of the game. Like if someone... If you're playing chess against someone, they hang a bishop. Like you're just going to snap it up, right? So it's just uh, just part of the game. I don't necessarily think that you have to be particularly ruthless to want to beat someone. And I guess although I have sort of maybe what could be described as like a warm, fuzzy exterior or whatnot, I, I do thrive off competition. You know, largely with myself, and I do enjoy uh, self-improvement and just just learning through uh, competitive endeavors. Right. So it doesn't go for your head like I want to crush this person. They're making all these errors. I want to like play every hand with them. It, it does it have a more mathematical feel to you when you're thinking in the hands? Yes, I would say largely it does. And I would also be lying if I said that I never feel that way. But when I do, 
I identified as sort of an inefficient way to think about things in the more sort of aggressive, ruthless approach. And um, yeah, I think you can play poker at a high level and still feel love for yourself and all your opponents and just acknowledge that, you know, this is just an aspect of life. It's, it's not everything. But it, you do also do have to strike a balance there. I've definitely mm, felt pity or sympathy for opponents, sometimes friends who were losing, and that can sort of mess with your mind and uh, just get you off your game in a way that you can't make optimal decisions. Is there anything in poker that you feel like doesn't have words for it that there should be words for? I would say in many ways, the things I've tried to put words to are are things I value within poker, which are that more intuitive uh, aspect of things, you know, on a spectrum of just like pure math and logic and going down towards the other end, which would be what is often seen as more woo-woo, like telepathy type stuff. I think that those aspects of poker and life really are sort of what interests me. And I guess I'm drawn to, to those ideas because I believe them to be real, but um, I don't exactly know how to express them in the most efficient way. Like I don't know how to get the idea across all the time in a way that is, I guess, opening up conversation without uh, pushing people away because it is such a, a sort of fringe, almost maybe even taboo type of thing. Right, particularly in poker where if people can see your cards and you're like a super user, except... <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I did see an interview with with you and Joey Ingram where you talked about um, reaching some blissful state in a poker hand where you were able to see your opponent's cards, like just energy-wise. And I, I think you ended up losing the hand, though. Like, you didn't play the hand. Yeah, so it, it happened actually on the turn in, like, a pretty big three-bet pot where, yeah, I just, like, had a vision of my opponent's hand. And, you know, whether it was right or not, I have no idea. But to me, more of what the, I guess, the situation showed me was that these things are possible, but you can't maybe there's some sort of universal barrier or something like you can't use them malevolently or purely for your own gain. Like, sure, sometimes they might help you, but it's at least the way I interpreted it, like sort of cool roundabout way to discover something that didn't yield me any financial gain, but kind of through experience showed me something very fascinating about life. Yeah, that is really interesting. So you ended up folding the turn or? I called the turn with an open ender. And then if the hand that I saw was accurate. He made a boat, and he shoved, and I folded, and, and that was it. The game went on. You didn't ask him about it later? I asked him about it at some future point, and he's like, oh, I can't really remember, which, you know, he's a nice guy. I don't think he was lying or anything, but um, I tend to think that if you run a huge bluff and it works, it sticks in your mind a lot more than just making a boat and value shoving and just winning a big pot. Um, yeah. So who knows? A lot of speculation there. I'm not really sure. But it was definitely, definitely a really interesting experience. One of a kind, to say the least. It's, it's amazing. Previous grid guest, Dan Smith, told me that you have an exceptional memory. We were talking about, you know, grids and ranges and how before high roller tournaments, he's even in the break, sometimes reviewing the ranges in different positions and different stack sizes because it's just so much data to memorize. And he pointed out you as somebody who just has a really exceptional memory. Can you tell us about that? I don't know exactly why it is. I mean, I guess it goes back a bit to the 
the topic of like innate ability versus like learned ability. I think I have what's called an eidetic memory. I'm not certain about this, but I guess I feel confident enough to say it. Um, like I can sort of recall images in my mind that they don't, they're not so clear that I can recreate them. Or maybe if I harness my artistic ability more, I, I could. But I tend to think that oftentimes what sort of triggers these visual memories is the emotional state I'm in when I have the experience. So when I'm playing poker, you know, I'm pretty plugged in, hopefully pretty plugged in, and I'm able to, I guess, uh, fully absorb the experience and then recall it better down the line. Is sort of the way I look at it. Right, yeah, because I think this came up because he was trying to remember a hand that he might bring on the grid and he said he couldn't remember it, but that he was going to ask you because you would remember him telling you about it better than he remembered it. That's funny. Yeah, maybe I could. <laughs> I definitely remember some hands from many years ago. That's for sure. So eidetic memory, that's not, that's, is that similar to a photographic memory? Yeah, I think it's somewhat similar in the sense that uh, you like you can recall the image, but um, I guess because I don't have a photographic memory, or at least I don't think I do, I'm not exactly sure what like quantitative differences there are. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I have a photographic memory, although I do have you know pretty good visual recall. So for you, if you study um, you know a pile output or a solver output about preflop ranges, is it just like really easy for you to like look at it once and then? just know it? Sometimes, yes. But oftentimes what I've found, and, you know, maybe I'm using this as an excuse or justification, but uh, like the difference between playing poker and studying poker is that when you're playing poker, you're a lot more emotionally invested. Like if I'm studying, I might have a podcast or some music on in the background. I'm kind of just, you know, uh, I'm chilling out waiting for the sim to run or whatever. And then when you look at them, they're so, they're so similar I guess my emotional investment is uh, similar enough from sim to sim. So I do think it gets stored in my subconscious. I've definitely had some uh, situations where, you know, I, I make a decision in game and then I look it up later and I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I was kind of right on the mark there from something I'd studied previously. But yeah, unfortunately, I don't just have a Rolodex of all the sims I've ever, I've ever taken a peek at and, uh, can just <laughs> flip right to it in game. Because it sounds like you're a very visual person. Can you describe like visually what thinking in poker might look like or is it not very visual in game? Uh, no, it is very visual in game for me. And actually, one of my first breakthroughs when I was like just breaking through into mid high stakes was uh, I just for the first time saw a game tree like in my mind's eye while I was playing. And I was just, I guess like the grid really. And I was like, huh, that's quite helpful and uh yeah i was able to just like sort of break down ranges from there and you know that's definitely stuck with me until today oftentimes i find when i'm not playing my best or i'm not fully focused i'm unable to take that that grid and minimize it based on action efficiently like i'll forget some parts of it or i'll use wishful thinking which of course never really works out but yeah i definitely i'm a very visual person i would say so when you're saying that the grid is kind of getting smaller as the hand progresses and certain hand types get eliminated based on the action and you're able to kind of keep that image with you throughout the hand when you're playing really well and accurately and god that is so important detail asterisks accurately because like if you were if you miss like a key hand that could change everything and maybe you'd be better off just playing with your intuition right 
Yeah, yeah, potentially. And I would say that it's fairly abstract, like the way it comes to me. It, you know, it's a, it's a vision in my mind. So it's, you know, it's not so clearly laid out like as concrete as something would be on like a chalkboard when you're a student in school. But uh, yeah, no, it definitely has to be uh, accurately minimized throughout the hand. Otherwise, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> not too helpful to just forget about a whole subset of potential holdings. Is it colored, color-coded, or colorful? Is it colored? Uh, I think at times there are some shades of, say, green is kind of the color that's coming to me. Not really sure why. I mean, the suits definitely bring some vibrance to it. Right. If there's like a relevant suit on the board, do you think of it like in terms of like the four-color deck of online poker? Yeah, maybe I do, actually. I guess the color doesn't stick out as much to me as just generally the the ideas uh, surrounding it. The size, basically, and the minimizing of it and the resizing is obviously the most relevant thing for your strategy. Yeah, definitely. That's really fascinating. Do you think a lot of great poker players think like that? And how do you think that people who don't naturally think like that could maybe incorporate it into their game? Well, the people who don't naturally think like that may not want to incorporate it into their game. Like, I don't know that this is necessarily something that is a one-size-fits-all solution. Like, I think there are some you know, phenomenal logical thinkers that are able to deduce things in their own way. I do think that whether through means like this or something similar, there are abstractions of images or ideas that aid and assist in people's thought processes in game. But I guess without asking individuals, it's hard to really know or pin down exactly how much relevance that has. Yeah, and it can even be hard to ask people about how they think because certainly certain types of thinking, you're so absorbed in it that it's difficult to relate later how it looked or what it felt like, you know, like dreams. And I'm just concerned that, you know, because most people learn poker as adults, whereas a game like chess, people mostly learn as children. And in chess, it's always imagery and visual that creates like the biggest gains. Whereas like when you start taking in chess students who are older, Usually they're trying to like describe things to themselves in words and then retranslate that into chess positions. And like that creates this like so many different layers where things can get messed up. I sometimes worry that like maybe poker is like that for some people that they're they're blocked because they're trying to translate like there's so many there's so much math already. And then there's the grid and it's like they're they're also incorporating like language and that it's just like too much, especially with such a small amount of time to make decisions. Yeah, and no, I think you're, you you hit the nail on the head there for sure. Um, especially, you know, teaching um, in some of these seminars with Learn WPT, I do acknowledge that for some people, some of the information uh, sticks much more quickly, and for others, it seems like there's something that's a blockade to them reaching that aha moment to like grasp some of the conceptual ideas that are being shared. You know, it's a, it's a good thing to think on and for me to ponder. Uh, you know, what is I guess a way to effectively share this idea with a a wider audience or a larger age group. I saw that you took some, speaking of visualizing in chess, I saw that you took some blindfold chess lessons, (laughs) not not blindfold chess lessons. You took regular chess lessons with the blindfold king, Timur Gureyev, who famously plays (laughs) dozens of blindfold chess games at one time. And I I just think that that must have been really interesting for you who have this great visual memory to meet somebody who's literally set records in visual memory. Yeah, it was fascinating. Uh, Timor is a great guy. I actually just met him at the chess club here in Vegas, and um, he's super friendly. Uh, if you've met him, um, I'm sure you know. 
And uh, yeah, it was really interesting. He's on a whole nother level with his ability. Like I would say he probably has a, a photographic memory, at least, you know, his uh, accomplishments would seem to lead one to believe that he, he does or, or something very similar. It is interesting how, I guess, this component of how I relate to and play poker does definitely have a lot of relevance in chess as well. I feel like I have so much less, I have so many less reps in chess. So when I play, it's not quite the same. I guess I've seen so many more poker hands, so it's, it's a lot more familiar to me. But it's easy for something to just not really resonate with my experience in chess. And as a result of that, I suppose, I, I don't really know the, the correct response on a, a more, I guess, intuitive or, or learned in a subconscious way. I heard someone once tell me, and perhaps you can verify whether or not this is true, that Carlson actually thinks in sort of an abstract way and has like maybe shapes, I think it was, that represent different positional ideas and is able to sort of, in his mind, abstractly take those shapes and sort of put them together and see what sort of fits. I just think that's, you know, pretty interesting if it's true. And if not, maybe maybe there's something to it either way. I have heard that Magnus has an exceptional memory, even kind of memorizing data that might seem irrelevant. And I think that can maybe tie into the Pio Sims where there's so many different ones and it's hard to distinguish. And if you're not careful you might just start like you know glopping everything together where when he studies old games he sometimes remembers what we would think of as irrelevant data like the year Mm. and the location and who cares if it was in you know 1923 or 1924 right like it doesn't matter it would seem but then as you've been talking I was like well wait a second maybe that matters because it kind of like it sticks the memory of the positional concept into like a different part of the brain which kind of codes it and I think to that point um, it helps with like chunking data so say in, you know, whatever year, 1923, a particular novelty or opening hadn't been popularized yet. And he maybe is able to, on a subconscious level, acknowledge that if he's recalling some positional idea from uh, from a game like that. There's a movie about him where, or maybe this is from the documentary, there's a movie on Netflix, Magnus, but there's been so many materials on him where it, you see this evidence of him just remembering random data from tournaments many decades ago. And it's pretty incredible. But... Getting back to poker, uh, another tweet that you wrote, or rather a tweet that you wrote at Lucky Chewy some time ago, I don't think you actually won that tournament, but you were very deep in it. You you probably either came third or second place. And you wrote something about how the zone is a very delicate place in poker. And even though you really want appreciated all the support of your fans, like in breaks, it might not be easy for you to talk to them because you were trying to maintain this zone. I was really struck by that because I thought it was a very wise thing to say and put out there and I was wondering how do you kind of maintain that zone and what does it feel like it's uh it's interesting because you know when you're problem solving you're so in your own head or at least I am and socializing I feel like must work just a completely different part of the brain and there is certainly some overlap where like say you're you know playing in a poker tournament you're socializing with people at the table but you know, at the end of tournaments, it tends to get a lot more serious and there's typically less socializing and everyone's happy because they've, they've done so well, but it's also the most intense part of the tournament. So sometimes like having, I guess, deeper social interactions is especially difficult. And I know like after a long day of playing, and I've spoken to friends about this who uh, have similar challenges, like even your significant other can ask you a simple question like, what do you want to eat? And your, your, your brain just isn't there and you just can't 
so easily jump to that that answer, even though, I don't know, it's typically not that hard of a question to, to respond to. Yeah, what's usually the answer to that question? I don't know. Sometimes I just sit there like I'm brain dead and uh, just look blankly ahead. I mean, or I'll just, you know, look my partner in the eyes and uh, kind of just have that mutual understanding of like, you know, I'm not really sure right now or I don't know, it's uh, it's tricky. Poker takes a lot out of you, or, or again, you know, maybe it's just me, but uh, there's just a lot that goes into focusing for long live tournament days. And at the end, it's weird because certain aspects of your brain are very well oiled, I guess, at that point, and you're you're able to perform at a high level, but other aspects of, of brain function seems to be diminished. I think of it kind of like if you've played video games where you get to distribute attribute points to your character. Like, okay, you get to give your character a lot of speed, but maybe they don't have as much strength. Things like that, I, I think it's sort of similar. There's you know, a certain amount of energy that you have based on where you're at in your life and whatnot. And um, you, you know, at any moment can uh, distribute it here or there, but maybe it takes some time processing speed or whatnot to transfer it to other areas. That's why I really admire super extroverted, funny poker players who are also like just really, really good at the game. It seems like such a difficult balance to be able to reach. And who do you see who's out there who's able to do that successfully? Just be like the, the life of the party at the table and also just play super well. Um, I mean, Dan Smith is one who comes to mind. He's definitely pretty extroverted at the table. But again, you know, at the end of a tournament, he's going to be more serious and focused on you know, the game. But, you know, Dan's always good for, for cracking a joke, no matter what the circumstances are. And yeah, you had to even it up because he said that you were the had the best memory. So. <laughs> so you wrote a book about yoga and poker that subtitle is High Stakes Journey to Freedom. What does that mean, the journey to freedom? Um, I guess what it means to me is that when you acknowledge what you're capable of, and I guess the way I viewed it at the time, sort of some structures that reality has within it that are inherent to life. It's very freeing. It's very empowering. Great. Yeah. And what kind of yoga do you practice, by the way? And what do you recommend for poker players? I personally enjoy hot yoga. I also like yin yoga because of the, the depth of which you can get in the postures and that you hold them for a longer period of time. More often than not, I'll kind of just do my own thing these days because I have a decent amount of experience uh, exposing myself to different systems and such. How do you recommend that poker players get started in meditation and yoga? Well, I think just, uh, you know, going to take a class is a great first step. But something I actually have found, you know, in my own sort of roundabout way of exploring some of these practices uh, away from the poker table is that a lot of poker players if not the vast majority of successful ones, already are quite meditative. You know, being able to sit for long periods of time and assuming they're not always on their phone and they're able to, to strike a balance between focus and, you know, maybe socializing if, if it's in the live environment. But there are a lot of uh, carryover components from meditation. You know, just being alone with your thoughts for large periods of time and introspection and acceptance and, and some of the other uh, things that you might experience uh, in meditation. But I definitely think that, you know, the easiest way is just to try it. <laughs> the worst that can happen is, is you don't like it and you don't do it again, really. One thing I wanted to ask you about your intuitive grasp and your love of the intuitive aspects of poker and 
the fact that you're actually doing uh, work with Learn WPT with solvers. You told me that you had some live seminars where you take solver outputs and you quiz yourself against them. What is the biggest challenge in being able to merge those elements? And when you have these students, like what advice do you give them of still being able to inject your intuition in a time where we have such vast swarms of data coming at us and correct ways to play the game? Um, It's a great question. I don't really teach much intuitive content at LearnWPT, primarily because that's not what people are signing up to learn. If somebody asks me about it, I'm happy to share my thoughts. But because I do also very much appreciate uh, and really have a love for the, the theoretical structures in poker, I wouldn't say I really turn that part of my brain off, but uh, it's just a different um, a different way of looking at things. So I don't I don't really uh, delve too deeply in, into that in those seminars. I think that's really smart because it requires like it's almost like a therapy session because if you're going out there teaching like super exploitative concepts and you don't know where the person is psychologically, it could be really detrimental and maybe it could date quickly if somebody watches your videos in like six or nine months i think it what you're saying really makes a lot of sense that you know if you help people with their fundamentals and their their math you can't really um damage them so like first you know do no harm right i mean to be honest i'm not sure that i really know even what the best way to teach uh things of intuitive nature even even is you know what works for me like like i mentioned earlier might not work for someone else so yeah it's tricky but i I do like talking about it and I find it very interesting, especially seeing where peers of mine uh, relate to or don't relate to certain ideas I have. Yeah, I mean, I guess the the common concern with teaching GTO is that people will feel insecure about following their own intuition if they become obsessed with just always doing the right thing. Do you think that's a valid concern in poker now? Yeah, no, I think it is a valid concern because sometimes there's other variables that are overwhelmingly relevant in terms of deviating from uh, a GTO approach. I had an interesting conversation uh, this past summer with a friend and he brought up a good point that if you can acknowledge you have a bias or, or a set of biases that might sway you in a particular direction consistently, then it's probably not fair to acknowledge or I guess hold equal weight to intuitions that lean in that direction. You're, you're just more likely to, to sway that way by virtue of the way that you're currently structuring your belief system and, and looking at things. But to me, there's, there's few worse feelings in poker than feeling like I should do X and then you don't and then you're punished for it. And that is... Uh, that is definitely a pet peeve of mine. Well, that's a brilliant way. I really like the way that your friend put that. I think that's really smart. And that's exactly coming back to what I was saying about how that kind of stuff perhaps needs like almost one-on-one therapy, like with mental game and like poker theory kind of combined into one session. Whereas like in a group session or like a mainstream video, it's going to be harder because everybody's like at a different place there where their psychology might make them overfold or overbluff. And if everybody's at a different spot, it could be like completely different what one person is liable to over overrate intuitively than others, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's a very like interpersonal sort of thing that you, you in many ways have to sort of sort out on your on your own. You, know, you can receive help, I guess. And again, I don't really think everyone is sort of meant to, to think in terms like this, but I, I do think it's fascinating to explore if you feel at all drawn to. So... To finish up, because this has been such a great conversation and just want to bring it back to the grid. What do you think is the most underrated hand combo on the grid? 
Well, I've been happy to see that suited kings have made a comeback in recent times. So I don't know. I'll say king four suited. All right. Yay. <laughs> I, I thought you might say 7-4 offsuit because, of course, that was the hand that you brought us today. The 7-4 offsuit, four bet against Victor Blanc. And you do it again. You just do it a little bit bigger. <laughs> Seriously, Yeah, guys. I mean, it didn't do me well, so I can't say it's underrated. <laughs> <laughs> It's correctly rated, 7-4 offsuit. Yes, yeah. Um, but seriously, thank you so much. Lucky Chewy um, on Twitter. He's also got a, a blog that's linked there. A lot of exciting projects coming up and currently a coach at Learn WPT. Thanks again for joining me on The Grid. Thanks for listening to thepokergrid.com. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. If you want to support my projects, consider a tax-deductible donation to U.S. Chess Women. We are working to even the mind sports playing field by bringing more women and girls into chess. Till next time, as we count down 169 hands. No one ever bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I got talent.